bump into the right person at a conference, you meet that person, that can make all the difference in your career and also for your patients. I work at a level one trauma center in Chicago. We work for the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center in Germany, Palo Alto, and Washington, D.C. I run a brain injury center right outside of Philadelphia. Just seeing all these, you know, these different folks come together in Atlanta. I'm an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation with the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I work at Carolina's um, Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm from China, so it's the first time I come here. Lakeland, Florida. U.S. bred, um, New Zealand bound. So that's, that's the wonderful thing about ACRM is you can be incredibly creative mm -hmm. and you can do what you have a passion for and work with other people who also have the same passion. It's like drinking champagne and eating, eating caviar all day long. <laughs> and I am currently pursuing my master's in business and science at the Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California. And the fact that there's a lot, that people are talking to each other, I think that's really significant because I go to a lot of meetings where, you know, there are talks that are given and then people leave. And at this meeting, there's a lot of communication, a lot of discussion, and I think that's the basis for making progress in rehabilitation research. Welcome to the December 2017 edition of the RehabCast, the podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. So you just heard sounds from the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine's 2017 conference. Our show's producer, Jenny Amet, and I accosted some of you during the conference proceedings, and so interspersed in this program, you're going to be hearing from some of those who are so kind to speak with us. Thanks for playing along, everybody. One of the speakers at a jam-packed session of ACRM 2017 was Dr. Ann McKee of Boston University, who currently has one of the highest media profiles of any medical scientist today. Her lecture was a tour de force of her work in CTE neuropathology. CTE continues to be all over the news with a couple of major developments recently, including Bennett Amalu's report in the journal Neurosurgery that he was able to prospectively predict the presence of CTE in a living NFL player using FDDNP PET imaging. That's a tau biomarker that's proprietary to a venture company called Talmark. Amalu's study described scanning a 59-year-old retired footballer who had had a 22-year career in the NFL. He was experiencing mood, behavioral, motor, and cognitive changes that were consistent with chronic traumatic myeloencephalopathy. The scan revealed a pattern of tau deposition with the highest relative distribution volumes in the parasagittal and paraventricular regions of the brain and brainstem. There was no correlation with amyloid or TDP43 deposition. Now, two years after that scan, the player was diagnosed with ALS, and five years after the scan, he died. Amalu was then able to confirm the presence of CTE with a gold standard tissue analysis. Now, separate news reporting from Amalu's publication revealed that the player in the study was Fred McNeil, a linebacker for the Minnesota Vikings. Meanwhile, major news out of McKee's lab this fall includes their discovery of an apparent biomarker for CTE, potentially offering another way that the disease could be diagnosed and tracked in living patients. That study, first published in PLOS One in September, 
zeroes in on the CCL11 protein found in CSF, a protein that's already been known to be associated with age-related cognitive decline. They found elevated CCL11 levels in the post-mortem CSF of deceased football players compared to controls, and the levels even correlated with the number of years spent playing football. Amalu in California and McKee in Boston are the two major CTE powerhouses publishing autopsy reports that are garnering the headlines. And that's in part because players suffering from CTE act out in ways that garner headlines themselves. Here's Dr. Amalu speaking with Sports Illustrated Now about Aaron Hernandez's postmortem CTE diagnosis. The former Patriots star player was serving a life sentence for murder when he hanged himself in his prison cell this past April. I wasn't surprised, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I have always known, and science has always um, confirmed, that if you engage in a sport like football, that you would suffer brain damage. There's a 100% risk exposure beginning from the first blow you receive on your head as a child to the last blow you will receive in your last game. And so uh, I think this is what we call a sentinel case, meaning an illustrative case. This is no longer something to be joked about or to be made fun about. Uh, this is, honestly, this is an epidemic of very critical proportions. Like the Lancet Journal said in 1976, that it will rather seem foolish or force to continue to intentionally expose ourselves to the risk of brain damage. So I, I wasn't surprised, unfortunately. But there are still dogged critics of the emerging perception that even minor exposures can lead to CTE and a lingering suspicion that something else may be going on. For example, there's Vanderbilt University. Vanderbilt neuropsychologist Dr. Gary Solomon published a 2015 review of CTE in professional sports where he deftly critiqued the evolving definitions of CTE which center on abnormal tau. He made a number of interesting arguments about the pathological parallels to other conditions. Now, Dr. McKee and Dr. Amalu do address these by going back to the relative unique patterns in brain slices. But still, Solomon emphasizes the plethora of other neurological conditions to be found in the NFL's CTE brains, like Lewy body dementia, Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia, ALS, Pick's disease, and progressive supranuclear palsy. Dr. Solomon, in particular, takes a close look at studies of normal brains, like one where there was over 2,332 unselected autopsies, where they found initial neurofibrillary changes uh, scales 1 to 2 on a scale of 1 to 6 that were found in over 40% of patients who were aged 40 years, and as many as 75% of patients older than 60 years. Nearly 10% of patients younger than age 20 were positive for abnormal tau protein. Uh, abnormal tau was absent in only 10 of the 2,332 cases, or 0.004% of all the cases that were younger than 20 years. He writes that with regards to pretangle phases, subcortical pretangle stages A to C were found in over 60% of those younger than 20 years, and cortical pretangle stages 1A to 1B were found in 50% of those younger than 40 years. 
In 100% of the cases beyond age 29, there was evidence of some degree of abnormal tau formulation. He writes that the implication of this data is that the development of abnormal tau protein is often a natural consequence of aging and not specific to repetitive head trauma. Sondland goes on to write that abnormal tau is even associated with opioid abuse. Why do the reported cognitive and neurobehavioral changes in CTE occur so early in life, in the 20s to 50s, whereas these neuropsychiatric symptoms are not manifest in cases of tau-based frontotemporal dimensions in non-athletes until the 50s and 60s, and in tau and amyloid-based uh, Alzheimer's patients until age 65 years? Dr. Solomon writes that, in other words, if tau is the sole or even the initial culprit, why are the cognitive, mood, and behavioral symptoms manifest so early in athletes and not until later in life in non-athlete patients? Whether the neuropsychiatric changes in CTE are attributable solely to tau pathology is debatable. As such, it is clearly not the case in Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia, despite the presence of abundant tau. In Alzheimer's and frontotemporal dementia, the abnormal tau is present for decades prior to the onset of symptoms. Now, Solomon's co-author on that paper is now one of the authors of a December 2017 editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which is joined by several others at the Vanderbilt Concussion Center. Now, they take the media to task for what they see as unfailing celebration of every case series coming from the McKee Group at Boston University, and they specifically critique the Boston Group for its willingness to work closely with media partners. The editorial highlights the sad case of Todd Ewan, an NHL athlete who convinced himself that he had CTE and he committed suicide. Media rapidly assumed that CTE was the diagnosis and cause of his suicide, but subsequent autopsy found no evidence of CTE in his brain. Turns out he most likely suffered from depression, something that was indeed treatable. Well, there's 2,400 people here. Yeah. So just to look at the numbers of people interested in rehabilitation research, sharing the efficacy of their practices, and then the whole area of implementation science, how we can take that rehabilitation research and apply it to the real lives of people, their families. When I was uh, a boy um, growing up, my father had symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and one of the things my dream was to, to cure my father of Parkinson's disease. Um, my mother-in-law just had three brain injuries. She has Parkinson's with dementia, and you know, older adults, they just tend to fall more than younger adults. And so, uh, yeah, I think virtually everybody knows somebody in their family who's had a brain injury. I had a car accident when I was three years old uh, in Iran, uh, even though I was born here in California. I, and coming back here to California for my rehabilitation and treatment, um, I basically grew up in hospitals uh, using a plethora of medical devices like RGO braces, KFO braces, uh, walkers, crutches, the whole plethora of whatever a paraplegic is given. Um, and then my sister was a bioengineer growing up and she um, inspired me to kind of take control of my own problem as well. Coming here, I really hope to kind of see where my expertise in designing medical devices and using medical devices can help bridge the gap between engineers who often overthink or underthink devices and what, uh, what patient needs actually are. 
and what kind of daily living activities they need to do that the engineer might not think about. Right. And I would say it's important to me personally because I am the spouse of a 26-year active duty Air Force service member. I have seen firsthand exactly what has happened to our service members, exactly what they've had to experience, both as a family member and um, as my and what, is, what my husband has witnessed as a combat cameraman. And it's very important that I can make a difference in helping people's lives, even if it's a small, incremental little piece. And now time for a little elemental news from the periodic table. Now, certainly you've heard of breathing into a paper bag for a few breaths in order to help yourself stop hyperventilating. Breathing too rapidly means that your body rapidly loses too much carbon dioxide. Too little CO2 decreases blood flow to the brain, and rebreathing your own exhaled carbon dioxide does get more blood back to the brain and prevents fainting. Now, I should note that in many cases, People have inappropriately breathed into a bag when they're actually having a cardiac arrest or a pulmonary embolism, so it's not the world's greatest treatment. But regardless, it can help in a proper panic attack, and in fact, it turns out that CO2 isn't the only gas that could prove useful in that situation. Xenon is a clear, odorless, elemental gas that you'll find listed on the periodic table. It's right there in the far right column. It's one of the so-called noble gases like helium and radon. It's used in a few medical imaging protocols, and anesthesiologists have long known that it's a nearly perfect anesthetic. You'll quickly pass out if you breathe a mixture of 50% xenon, and you'll rapidly wake up when it's lifted. Now, patients getting xenon anesthesia actually seem to have fewer side effects. In particular, cardiac stability is better, but the gas is rarely used for anesthesia due to its expense and the fact that it does require special equipment to administer. But now there's a wave of research activity tuned into the potential of xenon to treat a wide array of conditions. The xenon field is growing rapidly, and at least one biotech firm is rapidly racking up patents for various uses and ways to deliver the gas. Now, most promisingly, xenon calms a major neurotransmitter system that's in overdrive during a panic attack. And in a trial published this summer, people who inhaled xenon had fewer and milder panic attacks. Back in 2014, researchers at Harvard's McLean Hospital used xenon to block mice from experiencing fear. They're now working on human experiments where people breathe xenon as a way to help forget the searing traumatic memories that can generate PTSD. As for the mechanism, xenon inhibits NMDA-evoked currents and cultured hippocampal neurons by 60% at a concentration of 80% xenon. It's also been found to inhibit NMDA receptors at glutaminergic hippocampal synapses by 60%. Uh, and it seems to have little effect on AMPA kinate receptors. The specificity of xenon for NMDA-mediated components of the glutaminergic synaptic response, together with its lack of an inhibitory GABAergic synapse, implies that xenon acts postsynaptically. More precisely, molecularly, it's been shown that xenon competes for the binding of the coagonist glycine at the glycine site on the NMDA receptor. Based on protein crystallographic data, the binding of glycine is proposed to result in domain closure of the NMDA receptor leading to channel opening, and competitive inhibitors are suggested to prevent this domain closure. Xenon, therefore, possibly stabilizes the open confrontation of those domains, thus preventing channel opening. 
Now, overactivation of glutamate receptors is involved in many neuropathological processes. Excessive entry of calcium mediated by NNBA receptors uh, triggers biochemical cascades that ultimately lead to neuronal cell death. The neurotoxicity due to overactivation of NNBA receptors has, of course, been termed excitotoxicity. It's believed to underlie the neuronal injury observed in pathological conditions like stroke and TBI. So this is pretty promising stuff. Now, Massachusetts-based Nobilis Therapeutics does have projects underway for PTSD, IBS, autism, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease. This is, this is the, for, for research scientists, this is a very, very exciting and innovative time. So I, I think there's a cure in sight for Parkinson's disease, which is my field, and I think it will occur in my lifetime. And I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of that, that movement and the research that I do um, on exercise and neuroplasticity, uh, community-based exercise, and, and its effect in, on people with Parkinson's disease. The mystery of brain injury and how you get it is very, it's very exciting to me. It allows a huge field of translational research to happen. So that's one big reason why I like brain injury because it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a mystery that you have to solve. The other reason I like it and the reason I'm working for the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center is because my husband is also a veteran. He served in, in uh, nuclear submarines for six years. And um, yeah, so I think it's just very, uh, it's actually, it's, even though I don't sleep as, at night because I'm worried about my research, I do sleep much better when I do. <laughs> you know, because it's a very fulfilling job. The mystery of it all, I think that's really important because Carl Sagan may used to say, you know, we're a blue dot in a sea of, a, of the galaxy. Oh, yeah. But what we, you know, it is an incredible mystery because what we don't know about what's between our ears exactly. is even more vast than what, they, you know, what they're discovering out in outer space. Right, so it's like, right. we just at uncovering what's going on right in the brain and just to be able to be a part of that is just, it's phenomenal. And now for our featured interview. Dr. Doug Gross is professor of physical therapy in the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta. He's also director of the university's Rehabilitation Research Center. And we have him on the show today in particular because Dr. Gross is the corresponding author on a featured study in the archives December issue. That study is entitled, Motivational Interviewing Improves Sustainable Return to Work in Injured Workers After Rehabilitation. It's a cluster randomized controlled trial. This paper focuses on a general musculoskeletal injury work comp population, which is of course the bulk of what's being treated in work comp, and it offers up motivational interviewing as a potential new intervention. We're gonna get into that, but first, Dr. Gross, I wanted to ask you about the Rehabilitation Research Center at the University of Alberta, uh, would you give us a little bit of a picture of the history of it and, and how long you've even been in charge? Yeah, I took over as director in 2012. Uh, it's been around for almost 30 years now. It was set up by Dr. Sharon Warren back in the late 1980s. Uh, it was set up as a research consulting center, kind of helping faculty with their own research, helping out graduate students as well. Um, as research capacity in the faculty has increased, we've kind of expanded outwards. So now we work a lot with the graduate students here at the University of Alberta, the, the master's and PhD thesis research. And we also do some work with local community groups, hospitals and rehab centers, and help them out with some of the research that they're interested in doing. 
Now, this paper focusing on uh, workers' compensation, uh, what, what percentage of, of the work of your research center in general would you say is kind of looking more closely at, uh, at that population versus the general rehab population? Well, it, uh, so I just want to make a distinction between the Rehabilitation Research Center and my own personal research. So this, this paper is actually coming out of my own personal research. I've been researching workers' comp issues for um, well, about 15 years. Um, and I, I would say that it's the bulk, it's the majority of my own personal research. The, the Rehabilitation Research Center, it's, um, I wouldn't say that this is a big component of the work that gets done there. I see. Well, that's a good distinction to know. So let's talk about uh, the work comp system there in Canada relative to the U.S. Could you compare and contrast us a little bit? Yeah, I, I know a little bit about the some of the American systems. I know it's a little bit more fragmented here in Canada. We have more provincial workers' compensation systems. So Alberta-wide, the entire province has one system, one insurer. Um, across Canada, it's set up as a no-fault system. So that's probably the biggest difference. That is very different. So there is one insurer per province. One insurer per, per, per province. But it's more like Washington yeah. State. I don't know if you're familiar with Washington State, but uh, similar to that. Other okay. than that, the similarities, as you said, it's mainly musculoskeletal injuries. Um, the, the bulk, I would say, is musculoskeletal injuries. Some head trauma, brain injury, and more and more some... Uh, kind of traumatic psychological injuries, or those are growing. I think those are some, some similarities with the United States. Yes, yeah, certainly the bulk is, is musculoskeletal injury here uh, as well, fortunately, I suppose, for that, for that population. And uh, I'm, I'm certainly intrigued that the, uh, at least according to what I'm reading in the paper, the Work Comp Board of Alberta has its own rehabilitation facility in, in Edmonton. Is, uh, am I reading that correctly? They actually run a rehab unit there? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah it's called WCB Alberta Millard Health. So it's the only one left in Canada. There used to be more of these. But uh, yeah, and so it's kind of rare. And it's a great opportunity for me as a researcher. A lot of my research has been done there. Um, but it's the last one left in Canada, last of its type. Oh, how interesting. Do you know why they've kind of uh, gone the way of the dodo in particular? Uh, probably a variety of reasons. Uh, probably cost is at the, at the top of the list, but I, I don't know for sure. I just think it's great that we have one here in Edmonton. So it's a pretty good resource for you research-wise in, uh, in that sense. And in the particular system there in Alberta, people come to that facility only after they've kind of ex exceeded uh, ex expected recovery time for their condition, from what I'm understanding. Uh, certainly they've gotten medical treatment elsewhere, but they this is kind of a secondary or tertiary referral center. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, since the mid-90s, they've been using a care pathway for soft tissue injury, where some of the primary care is offered in the community, uh, physical therapy clinics, chiropractic clinics. It's only when the worker has been off six to eight weeks or longer where you kind of have, a, you expect the soft tissue injury to have recovered and the person to have progressed and returned back to work. If that hasn't happened, then they're referred in for a return to work assessment, looking for what's going, what's happening here. Is there something that's been missed medically? Is there other barriers to re recovery and return to work. Um, and at that point, um, yeah, there's, a, there's some, there's a minority that will go back to their PT or chiropractor, but I would say about 60 to 70% go into some other form of rehab, functional restoration, uh, or workplace intervention, something like that. Now, setting the stage for your intervention of motivational interviewing, um, 
you know, it's been documented, you know, previously in the uh, in the work comp population that psychosocial variables are crucial to, to good outcomes. And that certainly is similar to some other medical conditions. We see that a lot throughout uh, rehabilitation. Um, in particular, uh, you know, motivational interviewing, you know, kind of really is trying to zero in on perhaps some of the dysfunctional thinking or, you know, folks could be influenced by the circles that they're in and that type of thing. And, and it's, you know, potentially a, a really interesting intervention in, in that regard. Uh, when I reflect on kind of my own experience with it, I remember like back in medical school in the early 2000s, getting some extra training actually on motivational interviewing in the, uh, back there at uh, University of Alabama where they were asking us to use it in the context of primary care visits to target things like uh, smoking and uh, overweight and so forth. I think there's some good evidence for uh, tobacco use cessation in particular with motivational interviewing, but but porting it over to, to work comp, I suppose, is fairly new. You guys have done some previously previous work uh, on that as well. Can you tell me uh, a little bit about the history of, of motivational interviewing when it comes to work comp. Is, is your guys' work the, the first, or is there some other basis of evidence before you? Well, it's a good question. And in fact, that thinking process is exactly what led us to do the, this research. Yeah, motivational interviewing itself is not new. It's been around for decades, right? And it is coming from this, the field of substance um, abuse and uh, smoking cessation. It's, there's some, as you said, there's some good evidence around... Um, physical activity and, and weight loss. But as far as we could tell, we, we weren't able to find anything in the workers' compensation or injured worker population. Uh, I, yeah, I, had a, I had a PhD student that was very interested in this. She's an occupational therapist by training, had, uh, had a lot of background in MI, and was really interested in testing this. And so we devised this uh, research as her... Uh, her PhD thesis. So the earlier work that you're referring to that was published, that was the, kind of the, the immediate outcomes right at the end of the rehabilitation discharge. And we, we found an effect there, right? The people that had gone through the MI intervention were more likely to go back to work at the, at the point of discharge. And this is even in the case of, of workers who were not job attached at the time of admission for rehabilitation. That was really interesting for us. Here in Alberta, we still don't have a law that protects workers from being fired or terminated. And that's one of these psychosocial factors. It's a really big barrier to recovery and return to work. Uh, interesting. So could you say that again? So workers uh, don't have a particular right to, to losing their employment after they are injured in, in Alberta? No legal protections at that point. So if an injured worker files a claim, and the employer decides they can terminate that employment. And, and so, uh, you know, up, up to 30% of the workers coming to the rehabilitation center um, are not job attached. They don't have jobs to go back to. Interesting. But, uh, but certainly they're still covered in the work comp system that the employers are paying into. They're definitely covered. And so there's, there are some indirect consequences to the employers. Longer claims and, and generally the employer will have a higher premium. They'll be paying more insurance. But if they don't want that worker, they, there's nothing really stopping them, right? Terminating that worker. Now, uh, again, you mentioned it was your uh, your student, Dr. Joanne Park, uh, who's your co-PI in this study that uh, that initiated this. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate she couldn't uh, visit us today, but we've got you. That's excellent. And uh, uh, now if she, if she were here, she would be able to speak to the, those aspects of the study where she's, uh, she's well-trained in motivational interviewing, was personally providing that training to the clinicians there. Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that training does involve? So she was definitely involved in the training. She was not providing all the training on her own. There mm -hmm. is this group of trainers, MINT, they're called the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Um, we brought one of them in and they provided three days of training for our clinicians, the, the MI group clinicians. Joanne did participate in that. And then what Joanne did was follow up and provided monthly coaching sessions after that initial three days of training. And there, there are some unique, I mean, it's, it's certainly great that you have uh, this particular uh, work comp run rehabilitation center to work in. Uh, it seems like uh, your study design has to be certainly, I guess all of us experience this, it has to be adapted to the practice environment uh, as well. There were some things that you uh, could or couldn't do working in that, in that type of facility. Nonetheless, you did en enroll a lot of patients, 728, and uh, and to do the intervention or not. And you got clinicians that you were randomizing, interestingly enough, not the patients. Can you tell me uh, why you had to randomize the clinicians? Yeah, so we used this cluster design. It's just um, one of the challenges in this, um, in this type of setting is doing the intervention as part of business as usual or routine care. Um, mm -hmm. In order to do that, we need to find different ways, different strategies for randomizing. And we were able to do that if we randomized the clinicians. So we're creating these clusters. Uh, lots of times you see these cluster trials done with hospitals or rehab centers. So we applied that here at the point of, of clinician. And mm -hmm. then that clinician either used the MI intervention or did not. Yeah, we were not able to randomize at the level of, uh, of claimant. That... Um, a few different reasons for that. The biggest being the potential for kind of interaction. If two mm. claimants were seeing the same worker or the same clinician, one of them receiving MI and the other not, those um, claimants very likely to talk and kind of it would interfere with the, with the blinding. I see. Yeah, it does, it does help with that then. One of the things that we tried to do is maintain this study in the context of usual, usual care. So it was a very pragmatic trial, which I think mm -hmm. is a strength, but then like you said, there's lots of potential limitations that come with that. So, yeah, and you're talking about musculoskeletal conditions in general, not really breaking those, uh, those down per se. Of course, the uh, many, many of the treatment interventions are going to be similar across a variety of uh, conditions, but uh, could you give me kind of a little bit of a picture of kind of some of the most common types of conditions that we're talking about here? Yeah, definitely. At, at the top would be back pain. I think it was 30% of the, of the sample had claimants with back problems, back or trunk. The next most popular was upper extremity problems, soft tissue um, disorders of the upper extremity. Beyond that, we had, um, we had a variety of more specific conditions, fractures, dislocations, those types of more severe conditions. We had excluded head trauma and the traumatic psychological injuries. Um, and you know, that might be uh, another, yet another population, you know, either of those worth, worth exploring as well. Certainly on the basis of these types of outcomes, if this is uh, something that might port over to, to other conditions, I mean, they, 
there are impressive, uh, and we'll we'll get to that. I do note that, uh, uh, which you discussed. I mean, only twenty six percent of uh, the patients who were who were randomized, roughly fifty percent of that over seven hundred number. Uh, actually got the motivational interviewing as was documented. I don't know how it's just kind of documentation and so much documented they, they mentioned it or not, but um, but I guess it's somewhat of a of a chore or a, maybe some difficulty working that in into the normal clinical routine uh, that people can't always find the opportunity or lack of time. What do you think are some of the factors as to why only 26% of people that y'all wanted to got it? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. And uh, we've thought a lot about that. That, that, that as your earlier question about things that we couldn't do in this type of setting. We weren't able to monitor this really closely. What we wanted to do was videotape some of these interactions to really be sure that the MI intervention and some of the processes of MI were being used. That was not possible in this setting. And so we came up with this questionnaire, some additional documentation. And, and sure, that was additional burden for the clinicians. It was voluntary. They didn't have to fill that out. So one thing we, we don't know is whether they were using MI but just not filling out the paperwork or um, truly not using MI. It's probably a little bit of both because I do think that MI was probably not, in, it's probably not indicated on every worker that comes in for rehabilitation. Sure. Right? There's some people that might not be ready for behavioral change. There's other people that have probably already made their decision and they're very, um, well, they're no longer, they're out of the ambivalent stage. MI is really aimed at targeting clients who are truly ambivalent, who haven't made a decision yet, who are kind of on the fence, have conflicting opinions, can, some doubts about whether they should go back to work or not. Um, so the next study that we're working on right now is looking at this group, this subgroup that received MI, because their outcomes were so much better than everyone else. So it seems like there might be some characteristics of these workers that led the clinicians to use MI, um, but we want to kind of do this subgroup analysis, analysis to see who are the, the claimants that benefit the most from MI. Yeah, I suppose I skipped ahead a little bit without uh, delving into too much for our audience, kind of painting a picture of what an MI session might look like, but um, you know, certainly uh, per the, the for my recollection of it, it's in general uh, getting the the patient or the the claimant or the or the client uh, to really kind of start some kind of open uh, out loud uh, thinking uh, about you know how things are different now than before, what things they uh, are looking to achieve, um, kind of walking through through their their day and kind of the interests of the people around them, starting to de- starting to develop more motivations for. Uh, perhaps adhering to the treatment plan or, or things that they need to do that are perhaps uh, uh, work, but thinking in a, in a positive direction about goals that they that they might achieve. Uh, could could you add to that kind of general outline a little bit more? Well, that's a that's a very good description. It is definitely a client centered counseling approach, and and like you said, it's more of a problem solving approach, with the goal mm-hmm. being to increase intrinsic motivation to change. So this is coming from within the patient or the client, instead of being forced to change from outside, other factors coming in and saying, look, you're doing this wrong, you need to change. Um, this is, it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of an anti-counseling, counseling approach the way that I see it. Uh-huh. You're asking a lot of open-ended questions, you're trying to elicit change talk, and like you said, um, working through the process of decision-making to come up with a plan to go forward in the future. 
I, I see it as very different from most counseling, most traditional counseling sessions. Um, definitely leaving, leaving it up to the, uh, to the worker, to the client, um, to make up their mind, to choose one way or the, or the other. It's really up to them. It's an empowering type of uh, intervention. I do think we're going to have to find some different initials for it, though, if it becomes too common. I mean, talking about MI all the time in the healthcare context might give people the wrong idea. I want you to have an MI here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Well, now, uh, so the, getting to these outcomes, I mean, which, again, are, are super impressive, particularly in this uh, patient population. I mean, you talk about how none of, uh, none of the injured workers that, that got motivational uh, interviewing had to go back on, had to be put back on to uh, partial temporary disability benefits as a as a recurrence. I gather that population of people uh, had previously been on it, gotten off of it, didn't have to go back to it versus 4% in the control group. Is that a correct characterization? Yeah, that's true. So one of the most important outcomes that we were looking at and then related to our hypotheses was sustainable return to work. So mm-hmm. we thought that if true um, intrinsic change was occurring, um, and these people truly were more, more motivated to go back, they would go back and do so more sustainably. They wouldn't have these on benefits, off benefit kind of recurrent events. And uh, yeah, it was almost halved. Well, I think it was halved. The odds ratio was over two. I've got 2.9% wage replacement recurrence versus 5.2% if they didn't get motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. So pretty impressive. So the, uh, the partial temporary benefits, when you're kind of using that as a sign of somebody going on to that to try to improve their, their work status, uh, that was really uh, quite significant. Um, uh, people going on to, uh, or I guess coming down to, to partial versus total, uh, 18.7% versus 5.2% in the control group. Yeah, yeah, true. And we did see a difference between the job attached and the non-job attached claimants. So again, getting back to this group that didn't have jobs coming into rehabilitation, we saw that that group, those that didn't have jobs, were more likely um, to transition onto these partial disability benefits. So they were actually more likely to be finding work and um, going back and, and trialing out some type of work. Now they're still receiving partial benefits, indicating that they're not completely recovered. Um, but that's, we see that as a better outcome than um, you know, just staying on the total temporary disability benefits and not going back to work of, of any type. Now, uh, and again, this is just among the subpopulation, is the population of people who received any degree of motivational interviewing at any point uh, during the rehabilitation at the center, right? It's not like they're crossing a certain threshold of time spent in motivational interviewing. No, it was any type of, o- of, of MI. And that was really shocking to me. Um, given that these interventions can be as short as 30 minutes. Typical sessions are 30 to 60 minutes. And it's only one to two sessions in the course of the entire four to six week rehabilitation program. So these very brief interventions seem to be having these long-term effects up to one year later, uh, leading to more sustainable return to work up to one year after that. Yeah. I mean, who's ever heard of that? Talk about, yeah, uh, that's like a a serious uh, return on investment in terms of the the minutes invested there. Yeah, completely. So I would I would imagine, you know, this state-run work comp system in, in Canada I was, uh, is going to be quite interested in, in this research as well. I mean, occurring at its own center too. Have you started, have you gotten any feedback on the basis of the last paper you published? This one's been online since June as well. Is there a kind of 
more of a mechanism in, the United, in Canada than the United States, perhaps, to circulate information like this to policymakers? Or do you think it's perhaps not even ready for that yet, that you just need to do more of the basic research? Uh, no, I think that I, I think that we're ready. I mean, these these fi- these foundings were so important, and like you said, the intervention is so brief and low cost that the policymakers here are very interested. I mean, we have close relationships with the the workers' comp system, the uh, managers at the rehab center, and then um, the executive of the workers' compensation board of Alberta. And some of them were included as sort of integrated knowledge users in the study, and so mm-hmm. they've been aware of our results for a long time. And in fact, my um, co-principal investigator, Joanne Park, who you mentioned earlier, is now working on this as her postdoc, looking at uh, ways to more fully integrate MI into the care Mm -hmm. of injured workers here in Alberta. Wonderful. Well, yeah, I mean, I think a a no-fault system uh, in the first place uh, is a significant advantage over what most of the United States is experiencing, where it's not only no fault. It's uh, quite quite a lot of uh, legal hoopla and uh, potential different uh, secondary gain issues or just other interested parties such as the law firms and so forth. And uh, so you don't not dealing with that in, in the first place. And so it's a little more pure. But potentially even in that environment, in the more litigious environment in the United States, I think that's good. The signal would appear to be strong enough to perhaps be able to filter through here. So I, I think that that you know people here ought to be paying attention too. Yeah, I agree. I've given a couple of talks already in the United States, and there definitely is a lot of interest there as well. Uh, like you said, it might be a little more challenging given some of the differences and the more litigious nature. But I, I, you know, if, if an intervention works, it's, it's, it's going to work. And I still think that there's some power in this given um, the potential to really change the workers and the, uh, the, the thinking and the behaviors of these workers to move beyond all of that noise and really do what's best for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, uh, it is important for, for rehab providers to kind of, uh, and this type of research helps, start to kind of quantify in your own mind what it is that's most important about what you're doing over the course of your day. And sometimes it's, uh, it's not the, the phys- physical treatment part on a given patient. You know, I mean, it all plays together. It's not, not as if, um, you know, the strengthening and stretching and work hardening and other things aren't, aren't helpful, but... Uh, how you do what you do is certainly uh, at least as important as, as what you're doing, but sometimes more, uh, which this seems to suggest. Yeah, I agree. Well, this is really interesting stuff, and I, I hope our listeners will peruse the actual paper as well. Uh, this one strikes me as really important to the field, and I definitely wouldn't be surprised if you start to inspire other research and using motivational interviewing throughout rehabilitation. And it sounds like you're going to be doing some of that work yourself. Yeah, definitely. I hope so. Thank you for joining us on the Rehab Cast, Dr. Gross, uh, leading us out. A few more voices from Atlanta. Thanks for listening. You know, people have known each other, they're different, and they, they stick together. Well, I met a few people and talked about the different issues. I'm a little shy, so I... <laughs> well, we didn't come together, but we're, we're here together, yes. <laughs> Is it yeah. fun to socialize with other people that are into what you're... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So it's wonderful to come here and to see our colleagues and because we don't get to see these people otherwise because we're all distributed around the United States or the world actually now. Uh, so it's good to come here in one place and we at least once a year get to interact with each other professionally and socially. The first time I met her was last year, two years ago. And everybody was, um, and everybody was, you know, just having, you know, 
beer or whatever. And her and I, we just started hanging out and we didn't talk to anyone. It was, we just kind of didn't. East West. Yeah. 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 Cool. So we're now developing collaborations. We're developing um, all kinds of projects together. So WhatsApp. <laughs> we're very, we're very, yes, we, yes. we keep, we're very close. Yes.